Welcome to the 54th episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the rapidly changing consumer economy. This episode is brought to you by Loose Threads membership, which gives you access to forward-thinking research, events, and our analysts, so you can capitalize on the new consumer economy. Learn more at loosethreads.com slash membership. We also have a newsletter called Ripcord that highlights one important development each week and helps you escape the noise. Learn more at loosethreads.com slash Ripcord. Joining me today is Eliza Brooke, a senior writer at Racked, a publication that covers shopping from all different angles. Racked covers the industry from a consumer perspective rather than solely focusing on the business side, which makes its lens unique. A lot of people, I think, believe that they don't interact with fashion. It kind of represents something that's untouchable. Whereas, like, everybody puts on clothing. Everybody shops for clothing. You know, you put your clothes in the laundry. You don't launder your fashion. We had a great talk about Eliza's career, her favorite and most interesting stories, and where the industry is headed as complexity lingers from every angle. Here's my talk with Eliza Brook. Why don't we start... How'd you get into this? Or like, where did this journey to this part of the world begin? I'd always been interested in fashion. Like I was one of those teens who, you know, obsessively stalked style.com, learned every model's name, bought all the magazines. And when I got to college, I started doing fashion internships. I was at T for one summer and at Pamela Love, the jewelry company for another. And also working at like the college newspaper, I realized that like, journalism was like really the side of it that I wanted to be on. And so once I graduated, Wait, why? you know, I think it's because like when I was working in those environments, I always kind of felt like a bit outside of it. Like I was always kind of just like looking in on the workings of the industry and thought it was so interesting, but didn't feel like I should be a player within it, <laughs> if that makes sense, yeah. which is interesting. I mean, because fashion is such an exclusive world and I think like a lot of people feel excluded from it. And I think that is also what I was feeling. But at the same time was like, but I want to know more. So when I was about to graduate from college, someone from TechCrunch reached out to the school newspaper and was like, hey, we're hiring very well-paid interns. So I took on an internship there for the summer. Basically, I was like, I want to try something other than fashion. I know I want to be writing. And like, I hear this startup thing is happening. This is 2013. And that was like a great experience. And I covered a lot of e-commerce startups. So, you know, Everlane was just coming out. Kuyana was just... I remember Everlane started as a Tumblr site. Did it really? I think so. The original thing was on Tumblr and they posted their like first you know, here's what the things cost actually, and here's what we do. And I just remember, like, that's how Everlane started. Well, I just learned something. (laughs) Clearly, I was a bad reporter. (laughs) (laughs) You were just like, they're going to the moon. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the thing is, like, I was not a good tech reporter. Like, I'm not a tech person. And, like, frequently friends make fun of me for this fact that I'm like, I don't know how to do this thing on my iPhone. But, like, what I was really into was covering startups and, like, covering these small businesses and you know, covering all of these direct-to-consumer brands that were popping up. So I stuck around at TechCrunch after the internship ended as a full-time freelancer, essentially. Like, I owed them, I forget what it was, maybe, like, five stories a week or something like that for, like, a set amount of money, which I terribly lowballed when they were like, how much money do you need? I was like, here's a number that's true. So I kind of messed up on that front. But it was kind of through doing that that... I um, met Lauren Invick, who is now at Vogue International in London, but at the time was covering kind of fashion and tech at Mashable, and it just got hired to be the new editor-in-chief of Fashionista. So we got hooked up through a PR girl who was like, you guys cover the same stuff. You should know each other. And I was like, yeah, I know who she is. She does what I do, but better. (laughs) And when she moved over to Fashionista, I wrote a freelance piece for her. She liked it. There was an opening, and she hired me there. And then talk a bit about how kind of fashion needs to work, because from the little bit I know, it's become somewhat of a training slash breeding ground for a lot of people that have gone on to do a lot of other things kind of beyond it. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because it was one of the sites that I read when I was like a high schooler who was so fascinated by this world. I mean, Fashionista then was doing a really interesting job reporting on fashion from kind of like this. It was a blog, right? It was like kind of the digital world infiltrating the fashion world. I remember when I started, Lauren was very worried about me being a slow writer, which was completely true. And I got way faster because of that. So kind of learning to write for the internet at Fashionista was just, I mean, that's a huge skill. And that's like a skill I'll use forever. Yeah, because they're known for just pumping out shorter form, but immensely kind of frequent 
stuff, right? Totally, yeah. And it's so cool working at a website where, like, everybody, like, loves this industry and is, like, really just fascinated and motivated by it. I mean, the team is super close-knit. What year was – did you guys start a Fashionista, which was the first kind of sole focus? So I started a Fashionista in 2014. Okay. I'm curious to kind of pull out, like, what were some of the things or, like, the major kind of pillars or tenets of, I guess, the industry at that point that – a lot of coverage was lent to. Honestly, I just, I think I like blacked out and woke up from it and was like, what happened? Is, so, is that a story so in much. itself though? And, that that well, there was basically think, just no memory from everything in the craziness and the noise? I think that has more to do with like, I have a poor memory and also like, I was working on so many different types of stories. I mean, like I kind of got put on the business beat when I was there. Lauren was like, you can write about this. And so I was sitting in on like a lot of earnings calls for the first time. Mm -hmm. So a lot that to me felt very novel at the time were like continuing threads that had been happening. But one huge one that was coming up during that time was like coaches overhaul. I remember when Victor Luis, the CEO, like kind of made his first statement about like, we're going to overhaul this. It's going to take time, but this is what we're doing. I remember Lauren wrote that story. And then I kind of got put on the like quarterly tracking. So how do you find your way from Fashionista to, I guess, where you are now at Racked? Yeah. I mean, Brit just reached out. You know, I think that's <laughs> that's kind of the thing about the media industry is that like, and particularly this side of the media industry is that like everybody knows everybody and everybody's kind of aware of each other's bylines. Yeah, I was just, I loved Fashionista, but I was just ready for a new challenge. And when I came on to Racked, that was kind of the beginning of a big overhaul of the website, both in terms of kind of clarifying what our area of coverage was and also redesigning. And so talk a bit more about that of maybe where was it kind of when you started then how it's evolved kind of, I guess, up to the present. Yeah. I mean, so Racked started as a website dedicated to sample sale listings, store openings. It was like a very practical local resource that got started in New York. It kind of evolved from there and kind of the scope of the coverage widened up a lot. They started turning out these really amazing long-form features, which is a thing that we still do and is a huge reason why I love working here. But when Britt came on, we kind of began this process of figuring out, like, what the purpose of the website was. And what the team landed on was it being a website dedicated to shopping for clothing, accessories, beauty products, and kind of looking at it both from a service perspective, like where are the best places to buy stuff, but also a kind of, like, more psychological and more business-oriented perspective. So, like, why do we do it? Where are we doing it? Kind of what's the culture surrounding it? When I, like, remember kind of earlier versions of it, it was – I think everyone always knew it for the sample sales, right? Mm -hmm. Which is – this is just where you would go to see what was available to buy this weekend. And maybe it was – the psychological piece that you alluded to in the long-form piece was maybe not as exaggerated – or prominent back then as it has increasingly been, if that's a fair summation. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, we have a really amazing essays editor, Alana Oaken, came over from BuzzFeed, who is really, like, leading the charge on getting first-person essays in there. And she does a really amazing job of kind of finding the unique angle on those. Like, it's very easy to fall into cliches when talking about yourself and your relationship to clothing. And she does a really fantastic job teasing out kind of the unique stories within that. I'm very proud of where ACT is at now. Like, I really agree with the way it covers fashion. It's funny, I've kind of transitioned from telling people that I cover fashion to saying like, I write about clothing and culture and business. But like, it's kind of the semantic distinction between fashion and clothing. Like, a lot of people, I think, believe that they don't interact with fashion. It kind of represents something that's very exclusive, that's like untouchable. Whereas like, everybody puts on clothing, everybody shops for clothing. Like, you put your clothes in the laundry, you don't launder your fashion. You know what I mean? Like, and kind of transitioning to thinking about it as something that, like, how can we cover this in a way that, like, everybody can understand? Right. Like, less on a pedestal. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's funny. It's been an interesting transition for me, kind of, like, moving from thinking about fashion as this, like, almost academic area of study like because right. like what what is luxury what is luxury? because yeah. like i can't afford that clothing yeah. like this isn't real for me either like this is like it's a case study or right. it's like a museum display which has always been somewhat of a paradox with like the media covering it right which is oh yeah if anything it's a facade and realistically no very few people are actually buying the stuff that they're writing about oh totally I mean, they're they're getting for free or at like a heavy discount if they're even wearing it but if otherwise they're, they're just it. abstaining from the world from a personal perspective and covering it from a professional perspective. Exactly. Right. So it's very cool covering something that you're like, I have a relationship to this too. And what's been so cool is that like 
I've had people from college or high school like reach out on Facebook when I like post something I've written and they're like, oh, this is really cool. Like, I want to read about this stuff, even if they don't care about fashion at all. As Racked has gone, and it sounds like personally you've also gone from covering this idea of the elusive thing of fashion to more clothing and culture and all those things. Does that also have a parallel to culturally what is happening, Mm -hmm. how people are changing their beliefs, their buying behaviors, all those things? I don't know. I mean, I think it does say something about, like, the direction that fashion has gone in recently, which is that, like, Kim K is fashion. Like, she is the ultimate in fashion. A lot of brands are kind of understanding that they need to appeal to a wider swath of people. I don't know. This is where I'm, like, maybe my fashion history is failing me. I do think that is, like, a blind spot for me as a reporter, and that's, like, something I need to really work on. But I think it's true that in the current moment, like, designers are trying to incorporate pop culture very heavily into what they're doing. And you think about like Tommy Hilfiger with the fact that it's been doing these see now, buy now shows for the last three seasons that are like very clearly trying to court consumers and pouring tons of money into that and also pouring tons of money into working with Gigi Hadid and harnessing her huge following to get in front of people. To me, there's been a really interesting almost kind of bifurcation between there are elements of it that are becoming more democratic, but also if you talk about those influencers, it's also becoming immensely more centralized at the mm-hmm. same time. Yeah. And that's like a very interesting kind of give and take. Oh, totally. Right. There's this like huge consolidation of power around the like Kardashian-Jenner family, which is like they're driving the industry right now. Right. But at the same time, there are brands that are trying to become more accessible. Like this to me is an interesting transition into the – so one of the pieces you wrote recently was about – tell me the title of the startup mm-hmm. brand one. Oh, why does every right. lifestyle startup look the same? Right. Which again in itself is a paradox of – this centralized yet democratized aesthetic that all of these, I think you looked at like Outdoor Voices, Glossier, Bonobos, you know, Harry's, Warby mm-hmm. Parker, all of them have, you know, they're done by the same three branding firms. They look and all kind of use similar elements. But again, this interesting, I guess, paradox between very similar yet centralized. Yeah, that piece was really fun to write because that was something that like, I mean, I've been thinking about for ages, like, why do all of these lifestyle startups have the same, like, minimalist, sans serif aesthetic? And why do they all use the same typefaces? So I I looked into that. I mean, and that was a funny case of, like, this is a very obvious thing to write about, but, like, I hadn't seen many people, like, delve into it and kind of, like, what are the mechanisms for that? And what did you find? My question going into it, which I knew I couldn't really answer, was like, what's next? It came from a place of frustration. Like, I'm so sick of seeing all these startups that look the same. What's the next thing? I guess first, why do you think it happened? And then we'll talk about that. Totally. I mean, I think there are a number of reasons why it happened. One is that all of these startups e-commerce startups like launched and live online and you know by virtue of them being on a phone screen you just you need less junk on the page so I think like the minimalism really spoke to how it was being viewed I also think like forces like Google changing its font to a sans serif and like iMessage looking how it does like they all kind of look like iMessage so I think that was just kind of like in the water But then, you know, in talking to the art directors who worked with these startups, they're all like graphic design people with like a very strong, often academic background in this area. And for them, it was also kind of a kickback against the 90s typography and 90s graphic design, which is like kind of overloaded layers, like very kind of exuberant, kind of cacophonous looks. And like the juicy logo and like. Yeah, totally. Which is funny because like then like Kanye came out with this merch that's like essentially a juicy logo right and where gucci is now yeah totally and i think that's the thing is like we're seeing these kind of small instances of kickback against minimalism so like kanye's like very heavy gothic life of pablo tour merch or like the thrasher t-shirts that have been everywhere for the last few years like i think people are really into the kind of these like graphic design memes that pop up and it's like super recognizable they're everywhere. But at the same time, that's not necessarily what brands are using for their like permanent logo. Was that one reason? Were there other reasons? Um, yeah. Okay. So I think I said, <laughs> so I think I said technology. And then the other one was the pendulum of graphic design yeah. swinging back and forth between minimalism and maximalism. And I think there's also just the fact that like businesses copy other successful businesses. So like Airbnb rebranded and it went from that kind of like goofy, bubbly script to it's very like clean sans serif look that it has now. And that got a ton of attention, partly because its new icon looked like a vagina, but also because other brands were like, yeah, we'll we'll have what she's having. All right. So that was kind of how it got there. And then talk a bit about you were trying to answer this question of what comes next. Oh, yeah. So like 
Obviously, I didn't actually answer that question because, like, nobody knows what's next. I mean, I think the general answer is, like, probably more more maximalism. And when I talked to Outdoor Voices' current art director, you know, one interesting thing she said was that, like, they'll probably keep their logo as it is, like, because that's the foundation of the brand. But they could get more into, like, fun fonts like through stickers or t-shirts you know it's very similar to kind of the glossier approach like they have their like adorable little like cherry stickers and they're kind of there's a novelty to kind of like a cartoonish thing that you can like put on your phone but yeah, then like change the cursor on the website or something yeah exactly yeah. right right exactly like all these cute little touches but the underlying thing is very clean and straightforward yeah so i guess after kind of reporting out that piece do you think that like will forever kind of move in a herd mentality when it comes to these aesthetics? Or do you think there'll ever be like a splintering where there's some individuality that comes out of it? I think we're forever a herd. <laughs> but I mean, I'd love to see a splintering. I think there's like a big thirst for that, too. I heard back from a few graphic designers who I hadn't interviewed for the piece. And they were like, yes, we really want to see more that's like different and weird. You know, I'm not certainly not an expert in this field. I think like some people are going in that direction. But like, you know, if you think of like the first dot com bubble, like this is a thing that came up a bunch in my reporting was like there was the 90s graphic design that was like all over the place and really like I'll use the word cacophonous again. And then kind of with the first dot com bubble, there were all these like online company founders who were making their own logos and so they did like some pretty like heinous design work but you know it was like fun and weird and like they could use as many colors as they wanted and they could do whatever they wanted because they were designing digitally so I think that's like an instance of things kind of going in like many different directions even though it was still governed by one kind of big principle so I guess the next one to talk about just from the sheer kind of response I saw on Twitter was the French girl one yeah talk about where that came from why and then kind of what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Why? So the French girl story was another example of it being... Just say the title for... How to sell who- a billion dollar myth like a French girl. Yeah. So that story, I basically wanted to look at this at like Americans' obsession with French girl style, which is a trope on a lot of women's lifestyle websites, not too much in print. Like it's really a digital thing. You know, how to eat breakfast like a French girl, how to do date night style like a French girl. We're so into French girls because there's this idea that they're like effortless and chic and beautiful and thin and they have fun while doing all of that. It's like the ultimate in self-help literature. And it's like the ultimate in kind of preying on, I think, like a thing that gets thrown at women all the time, which is like look fantastic, but please make it look effortless. So I basically wanted to know what the business around this looked like. So part of it was exploring the culture of it and kind of why we're so attracted to this. But a lot of it was also looking at like, how big is this economy? Like how much money is being generated from French girl sales? So I basically looked at the beauty business around this, the fashion business, and the kind of literature business here because there have been a lot of books that have been written about like literally how to be more French. That's like the first degree of aspiring to be a French girl is like buying a book that will tell you exactly how to do it. The second degree of it is like buying products that are kind of associated with it. So, you know, getting into like beauty brands that um, were kind of marketing this aesthetic. There's one called French Girl Organics that is based out of Seattle and it's founded by a woman who's American, but she just has a really strong affinity for French culture. There is a, you know what a mango lassi is? Mm hmm. There's a company that brought them to America, and it's just called That Indian Drink. No. And it's like, that's, that's much worse. That is but, so bad. <laughs> not saying that woman's brand is that, but but no. there's a similar, there, there's appropriation. Yeah, 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 totally. And, you know, using the term French girl is so funny to me. I discovered that one when I was on a store tour at Anthropology's massive Westport, Connecticut store, and I was like, writing this story and I was like oh my god that's it and it's very minimalist it's very clean it's kind of you know Chanel like packaging a lot of the products are like a very pale pink in color so it's kind of all of these like millennial pink minimalism French girls like packaged all into one the interesting thing about that company is that like the founder of it is like a woman I believe she's in her 60s and you know she just really loved France and like I do think that her approach to it and marketing it is not as cynical as it seems, which kind of gets to 
like the endearing thing, I guess, or like the really understandable thing about French girl culture, which is that like it's born out of like a genuine desire to like make your life better. So that was one case study. Another was kind of looking at the movement of French pharmacy products to U.S. stores. You know, Bioderma is like the best makeup remover in the world, according to every beauty editor. And it used to be something that you could only get if you were in Paris for the fashion shows and you'd like get a ton of it and bring it back to the States. Now it's sold in certain stores here and also big brands like Garnier and Simple are making their own versions of it, too. So it's kind of infiltrated big drugstores as well. So I looked. You've written 225 stories for Act. Have I? Yeah. Oh. If you search your name. Is that, that seems low. Really? I, I guess, no, I mean, that seems exactly right. My output decreased a lot going from Fashionista to Rakt. I was not writing, like, five stories a day. I still, I mean, it's a lot of stories. It is, yeah. What other ones have been of note? Of note. Or interesting to you? I just did one that I found super interesting, where I went to the NRA Carry Guard Expo, which was a big event put on by the NRA and they were holding a fashion show for the first time ever so I attended there was also someone from refinery there I mean like this is kind of something that had like become a known quantity because States of Undress which is an amazing show that Viceland produces their host had gone to a concealed carry fashion show so it was kind of on like on people's radars but basically I went to this expo and just like talked to people about the concealed carry accessories market which is to say like bags that you can hide a gun in or like holsters or lace corsets that you can put your gun in basically products that like clothing or accessories that you can put on your person and have your gun be out of sight and that was just super fascinating because like you know, I personally did not know a ton about... You personally don't conceal carry a weapon? I don't. But, you know, it was like a, a side of this industry that, like, I really didn't know a ton about. And by all accounts, I mean, everyone who I talked to there was like, the women's market is growing a ton. And kind of the options for women are growing a ton. But this is partly coming from, like, women who had founded their own businesses, like, to create bags mm-hmm. that you can put a gun in. And, like... A number of them that I talked to were like, yeah, I I did not want to, like, own a gun, but then, like, I was stalked or, you know, crime went up in my city. So I decided to get one and I realized that there weren't enough good options for women, so I started making my own. I mean, it's a classic founder story. There's a problem. I experienced it personally. I'm going to solve it. And, you know, the the numbers of women who are buying guns has gone up in recent years. Which sounds like a really, again, I guess, interesting example of the sunny fashion story, but that's Mm -hmm. a very much like a a shopping commerce kind of culture intersection thing. Yeah, it's a clothing culture story for sure. And with that one, you know, I tried to keep that one extremely neutral. I mean, like, that's obviously when you're a journalist, like, always the goal. But particularly when you're going into a culture that is not your own, you don't want to, like, go in, like, making judgments. It was really about, like, learning about this market and kind of understanding the nuances of it and kind of the range of products that are out there and also, like, the various reasons why people want to conceal yeah. carry. One or two others that stand out. Mm. So we published this big package recently, which was a look at the amount of free product that fashion editors get. We called it the Swag Project. And it took the form of five or six different stories that were written by different people on the team, all kind of centered around this like very long data collection project where over a period of six months, we had everybody on the team log everything that they were sent by brands and like specifically stuff that they hadn't solicited, although they could include stuff that they'd received at events. Yeah. So talk a bit about the problem first, just to make that clear. And then we can talk about the process and then the result. So basically, there's this very well-known phenomenon within the fashion industry, which is that if you write about fashion or a fashion editor, you're going to get a lot of stuff for free from brands. And, you know, that could be something along the lines of like, a brand is launching a new category and they want to send it to you so you can try it out. Or perhaps it's the holidays and they just want to send something over to kind of engender like goodwill. There's always a reason. And at the end of the day, the reason is to get coverage. So basically, we wanted to look at this whole phenomenon and like really use this as a way to talk about how the fashion media works. You know, it really wasn't intended as a way to like call out PR people for muddying the ethical boundaries of fashion, because the fact is the fashion journalism sphere 
has a lot of different kind of ethical bubbles within it and kind of what you're allowed to take and the extent to which you purport to be objective is very different depending on what your position is. You know, it's a well-established fact that, you know, if you work at a fashion magazine and you're doing a roundup of the 10 best coats for winter, two of those are probably going to be an advertiser. And, you know, then on top of that, probably, you know, some of the other pieces that get in there are because you have good relationships with those publicists, you know, versus like at the New York Times where you're really not allowed to take free stuff because you're treating fashion as like any other area of journalistic inquiry. So we kind of wanted to like tease apart what this whole landscape looked like. And it resulted in kind of one core body of work, which was logging everything that we got for six months and also keeping all of the product we got. So we we housed that in our fashion closet and then eventually had to move that to a storage unit in New Jersey because we had so much stuff. And we took all of it out at the end of six months to do a big photo shoot. So we rented out a big studio space on the west side and photographed all of the things that we got in all of their many different product categories, like beauty products, clothing, so many candles, so many water bottles, and also just like random gag gifts. And also then photographed all of the packaging that it came with. And I was the one who had to do the spreadsheeting at the end of it. So like everybody had been adding their gifts that they'd received to this spreadsheet. And they were, you know, logging what brand it came from, what the item looked like, what it retails for. But at the end of the day, what I found is that we'd received almost $100,000 in free product, which is a crazy big number on its own, but pretty remarkable considering the fact that like Racked is a small website comparatively, and we don't get as much stuff as a lot of other publications. So you kind of have to imagine like the scale that this exists on for other websites and magazines. And of that, I mean, the vast majority of it was beauty products, which is like a really interesting thing. I mean, just the amount of money that goes into marketing in that industry. Well, it seems that they're really cheap to make and therefore... From an investment perspective, you can send a ton of them out, Yeah, maybe more than you can fur coats. It's true. Although one interesting thing that a publicist told me, because the other story that I did in addition to this big data story was talking to publicists about, like, what do they think about this and what kind of thought goes into it? Like, how do they decide what they're going to send out? How do they decide what is going to advance their cause and kind of what are they trying to get out of it? And one beauty publicist who I spoke with who wanted to remain anonymous, as pretty much all of them did, like nobody wanted to injure their client relationships because of this. She said that one thing that happens with beauty is because they tend to send press samples out well before the product actually goes to market months in advance they'll do a separate manufacturing run for press samples and because that's a smaller quantity and because the startup cost is the same as it's going to be for the regular manufacturing run they actually wind up being more expensive Mm. but it is true that that is it's less expensive than a handbag or for a coat which you know the sense that i got is that Those sorts of gifts used to be much more prevalent than they are now because in the past, publicists were only gifting to a select group of editors. It was like 30 people or so. So you could afford to like if they write a great piece, you could send them a fur coat. Today, it's more like they have hundreds of people to give to. And that's print editors and digital editors and also influencers, which means that everything is simultaneously has to be less expensive, but also is more over the top aesthetically just because they also want it to get Instagrammed. Do you have any sense what percent of the products came in looking for coverage versus what came in after coverage? The vast majority of it was, I believe, looking for coverage. But we did have a number of instances where it had been, you know, a thank you gift. And you do get a lot of food. Hmm. But the interesting thing about all of this, too, is like there was one particular round of gifting where this brand had sent Momofugu treats with all of their products. And you could see based on like what was Instagrammed, like the various tiers of priority within that gifting. So like you might just get a cookie, but the next tier up is like getting the cake balls. And then the next tier up is getting a full cake. You understand where you are in the editorial pecking order. That's really funny. Yeah. So where did the idea come from? Like what was the actual process of figuring out, you know, to do this? Had anyone done this before? 
Um, On the scale, at least? Not that I was aware of, yeah. So this project came about from a conversation I'd had with a friend. She is a reporter at the Times. She covers immigration. She's like a very smart reporter and a person who cares a lot about fashion. She knows a ton about it. But we were talking one night over dinner about like the fact that when I was an intern at the Times Style magazine, I was asked to sell product for the editor I worked for. And give the money back to her, like sell it at Beacon's Closet. And she was like, what? That happens? And I was like, yeah, I mean, this is the whole thing about fashion is like people don't get paid very much to have these jobs where you're selling a very glamorous image and you're basically tasked or task yourself probably more frequently with embodying this ideal that you're marketing in the pages of your magazine and that the brands that you work with are marketing that you can't actually afford to live. So to do it, you take handouts from brands, you take the free manicures, you take the free blowouts, you take the haircuts, the exercise classes, the clothing, you use the press discounts, like the list goes on and on. And she was like, what? That is a story. And I was like, I thought everyone knew this. (laughs) So I went and talked to my editor, Meredith Haggerty, and we were kind of like noodling this idea around and we took it to Brit, our editor-in-chief, because we were like, we should just like look into what we get and use ourselves as a case study. And Brit was into it, which I think really speaks to like how cool of a place Racked is. Because, you know, I think like a lot of other publications would be wary of doing something like this, you know, because it could compromise your relationships with brands. Right. It's also, you know, exposing yourself. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, (laughs) this isn't meant to be some kind of like us taking like a very superior stance, like we're so ethical. It's like, no, we engage with this. And I think we owe it to our readers to talk about that. I think that was one of the, at least tone wise, more interesting parts of it is it wasn't this like, you know, we are on the hill looking down upon those getting investigated. But it was almost like the acknowledgement that you were all complicit in this, which I think almost set the stage for it. You actually could have an open discussion then. Totally, yeah. I mean, one thing that came up, I believe when my coworker Javi Lieber did a piece on all of the stuff that gets resold by editors. Talk about that more, because I think that was super interesting. And that, to me, people do not know about. Yeah, I mean, that was an excellent piece. So she looked into this activity around gifting, which is that a lot of editors will resell the stuff that they get for money, or they might like you know, swap it out for something that they wanted better. But when she was writing that piece, I think she like pinged the whole team and was like, hey, have you ever done this at Rack? And the whole idea is like, nobody's going to get in trouble for this. Like, let's talk about it. But yeah, it's super prevalent. And, you know, it's something that publicists know about. Like, they certainly know about it. They get Google alerts every time their brand is mentioned online. So they're getting the eBay alerts if they're getting sold there. So I obviously really enjoyed reading it. I, it was in-depth enough that you actually explored the issues, but it wasn't burdensome that you were like, okay, you know, I have to get through all this. The one thing I did text you after was the point you touched on before was there wasn't budget to afford all this stuff. And I thought that was an interesting thing that I think was, I would say, quickly addressed. And my two thoughts were, does something get lost when you don't actually have the shopping experience itself? When it gets sent to you, that's not really an experience customers usually have. You know, what is in that process? And then two... What would it take to actually have a budget for this and, you know, rid yourself of all of those ethical dilemmas? Were just two interesting things that came to mind that the piece kind of triggered. I think those are both super valid. I mean, I don't know. I'd be curious. Like, I have no access to budgets as a reporter. So, like, I don't even know what this looks like. I mean, I do know that, like, if I'm working on a story that is about a brand and it requires testing something out, for the most part, I'm pretty sure I can expense that. But looking at the volume of stuff that we get and particularly what, like, beauty editors get and, you know, I wonder if any media company, especially in this media landscape, would be willing to add that to their budget. I truly don't know. Yeah. But you do make a really good point, which is like to write about something really well, you should have tried it. Like or, like a consumer would. Like a consumer would, which is also the tricky thing. So it's like, right, is gifting the right avenue for that? Because you're testing out the product, but you're not getting it in the way that anybody else would, which is actually one reason why when it comes to packaging gifting. You know, I know some publicists are very in favor of just like using the brand's regular packaging. And that's particularly true for e-commerce companies. So they'll just ship it in the box that it would otherwise come in. So at least your unboxing Mm -hmm. is fairly similar, even though it was like, you know, you didn't have to order anything. Part of me, though, is like, 
if you as a reporter are not compelled enough to go out and get the thing or like track it down like a shopper would, that to me is like fascinating evidence of anyone's propensity to get that thing. Yeah. If you're just like, I, like, I don't, that's really not worth it. That to me is like really interesting signal versus having everything served to you on a platter. Totally. And on the one hand, like you write about so much stuff and you're often required to jump on stories so quickly that like you couldn't possibly go out and get the thing. The best you can do is look at it online. But yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> it's like, should you be writing about it if you're not compelled enough to go out and look at it? And I mean, I think that's the thing that I, you're making me rethink all like everything I do right there, now. There, there's a 2.0 project coming. No, <laughs> I, again, I, I thought it was awesome. I was, those were just things that were that were percolating. But this uh, is the whole concept you know. is like we we wanted to start a conversation yeah. around it. So how did the launch go? What was the response to it? And then we can circle back to So it went really well and it got a lot of attention because I think for people who work in editorial, this is something that's very familiar but doesn't always get explored and the things that you get for free is it's always a topic of conversation. So it's inherently interesting to those people. For a lot of publicists, the feedback that I got was actually quite positive. I thought that there would be more pushback or more like uh, blacklisting after it. And instead, what I heard was a lot of like, we sent this to our clients. This is great. Basically, just like since nobody had written about this and since nobody had written about like what makes a gifting effective or not? Like, what does the competition look like? Potentially, you know... You were, like, laying out the blueprint, basically. Yeah. And no one had done. Right. And also, like, you know, sometimes, like, a gifting isn't a great idea. And maybe, like, a client wants to go forward with it. But, like, it's frankly going to get lost in the onslaught of things. So potentially that that could help them in that way. And then, you know, beyond that, I think a lot of people were just like, this happens. <laughs> Which was, you know, I, I don't know. I just think, like... People are very interested in reading about, like, ethical issues in the media, and they're really interested in talking about, like, gratuitous free things and waste. I mean, the waste of it is a huge part. Ultimately, we wound up with our our packaging that we'd received weighed in at a little over 300 pounds, and the full thing weighed a little over a thousand pounds, which is somehow less than I thought it was going to be. It seems light to me, but yeah, I, you want uh, like a ton. Yeah, and I wanted to cross the the hundred thousand dollar mark, but we didn't. It was like ninety five something. You should have just gifted the team like five thousand dollars <laughs> of something, right? Just like a check. Yeah. <laughs> then the, the other piece also was you all updated a lot of your ethical policies. Yes. As well, talk a bit about you know when did that come in and, and what did you all do and. How yeah. That was received. So because we were taking a look at ourselves and what we get, we also couldn't do this project without looking at our own ethics policy and kind of reexamining our relationship to free things and what we need to get. Not just because like that's the obvious piece of pushback that yeah. you would get by publishing this, but truly because it's a thing that we should be thinking a lot about. Was there a policy before? I believe it was somewhat left up to each editor and reporter's discretion because it's tricky because Racked is a website that publishes product reviews from a shopping team that like is recommending stuff to people and then there are also right. and then there's a business model behind that too right via totally. affiliate fees and all that yes absolutely and then there are reporters like myself who like i don't make so many product recommendations i don't really write any of those stories most of the stuff that i write is like business features and cultural analysis and so i would probably be wise to stay further away from taking free stuff and cheryl as a beauty editor sits in a weird place too where she writes a lot of those business features she also makes product recommendations and also to write those business features it helps if she knows the product really well so it's weird in that sense basically what we worked out is kind of a clearer strategy around disclosing when we've gotten stuff for free as far as big lessons i mean i think for me this was just a really helpful project in the sense that it threw into high relief the fact that journalism in general is a lot less ethically black and white than we might want it to be and i think you know if you're like a student coming out of journalism school or if you're I don't know, anybody, you might hold on to this feeling that journalism, generally speaking, is like there are right ways to do it and there are wrong ways to do it. While there certainly are right ways to do it and very wrong ways to do it, there are certain industries and a lot of them being consumer industries where reporting about it is it's a soup and you kind of have to figure it out 
on a case-by-case basis to a certain extent. There's no blanket statement that you can make about how fashion reporters should act. So, you know, I think in this media landscape where journalists are very much under fire, but also where people are kind of more invested in journalism than they've been in a long time, at least it seems that way. I just think that's an important thing to remember. So BuzzFeed has this unit of the company called BuzzFeed Product Labs where they make their own products Mm -hmm. and very smartly use BuzzFeed as a distribution channel for their own products. What do you think of that? Because I think media companies are also starting to make their own things, Mm -hmm. which they then obviously want to promote and sell. Is that like very new territory? Is that different? Is it similar? Like what's... I mean, I think it's definitely like an emerging territory. Um, And I think the best example of that's Glossier, right? Like it came out of Into the Gloss and... I guess maybe I'll I'll more narrarily define it with like journalistic media companies. Right. Into the Gloss was superfluous. It wasn't reporting. It was interviews Was it? Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I don't know. I think Into the Gloss is, you know, it was born out of the magazine world, right? Like Emily Weiss worked in magazines. But no, I mean they have like very thorough interviews. Okay, and... I'm wrong. But this, this is the tricky thing, especially when you're when you're talking about like fashion and beauty, is that there are certain things that we want to call journalism, and there are other things that we want to call like writing or editor- editorial. Media, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think like people will feel different ways about different types of writing. But I take your point. But this question of of media companies starting to sell products, what types of products is BuzzFeed selling? So they have their Tasty Cookbook. They have the Tasty right. One Top, which is a, a hot oh, stove, right. basically. They have card games, homesick candles. Yeah. A lot of stuff. I'm curious how much shoppers take to that. I feel like Tasty makes so much sense because that's just like been doing gangbusters. Yeah. But there are a lot of media companies that, like, I I really think you have to have the right brand and the right product because otherwise it could just seem like merch. Or just more from, like, the journalism side. It's one thing to have other companies wanting, sending you free stuff to write about them. Yeah. How does that change when your company makes stuff stuff. now? Right, right. I want to see more examples of it. I think it's something to be very careful about, though. You know, it's also a question of, like, BuzzFeed has like an investigative reporting team and it has a business reporting team and it has like more entertainment focused Mm -hmm. teams. Like how siloed are they? I think that's a question to consider here. Going back to the Into the Gloss Glossier question, I mean, that that was an interesting one just because Into the Gloss does a ton of product reviews. They still do, right? They still do. And they interview people about what products they like best and what they use on a daily basis. But now they're also selling their own product line. I have noticed there are a lot more Glossier products that pop up in people's interviews, people, you know, saying that they love the cleanser and stuff like that. And and right. And that's, you know, you kind of look at that and you're like, okay, well, there's a very good chance that that you do like it a lot, but it's kind of hard to know. Yeah. So the other interesting one on this point is, I don't know if you saw, but have you read at all about what's happened with Casper and the mattress review sites? No. So Casper has been buying and suing like the top three mattress review websites online what so they now own them there was this long story where like there was some fight they loaned a dude money to buy the company but they own the company that they just bought now so they own now the the review channel so that would effectively mean if racked covered mattresses yeah casper now owns racked Oh, that's insane. Yeah. I mean, that said, though, I feel like I'm always very wary of of product reviews, like in other categories, too, like beauty product reviews. I don't know. Right. Because it's like, I don't know. It's yeah. the brand populating Nordstrom's website with all of these positive reviews. Right. Maybe. Right. Or, or who owns the Yeah. But that's just outright. But, but it's also interesting because, you know, yeah. the New York Times bought the Wirecutter. Right. Right. Which is their now product review hub. And... I'm sure they have to be incredibly mm-hmm. strict and transparent about that because it's the times. It's just interesting how all of this is like shifting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am curious if we're going to have many sites that like, because right what we're seeing with so many websites, particularly like lifestyle publications, is that we're all getting into product reviews, right? So like right. the New York Mag has like the strategist and they're right. recommending tons of products. And obviously right. we're trying to get like affiliate revenue from right. that. Right, Be- because they're looking for business models. And exactly. it turns out that for a very long time, media was driving sales. They had no mm-hmm. way to track it or 
earn money from it. And now, because of the internet and affiliates, you can draw from A to Z. Yeah. So everyone's doing it. I'm curious how many are also going to go the making their own products route, Mm -hmm. because that's the other obvious one. I mean, and that one's so much harder to pull off, right? But it seems that, again, from an ethical side, we haven't really dealt with that before on Mm -hmm. any large scale. No. Which is super interesting. No, and I feel like there will probably, you know, depending on how far along it gets, like, we'll have to be some kind of reckoning around that for sure. What's, I guess, on the horizon or what are you excited about as for what's to come? Mm. I'm doing a long-form piece on kind of the whole, like, children of famous people modeling phenomenon, which is, like, a thing that's been covered so much already, but, like, I'm trying to figure out, like, what material changes this is having on the business and also like how sustainable this is and how much longer it's going to go on for because like everybody's child has entered the business at this point like more than I even know and like I'm continually discovering new ones so it's kind of this question of like how much of a diminishing return is there like how many whoever's do you need to equal a Gigi Hadid and like do you have to pack your campaigns with them that one I'm currently working on the sourcing for but I was able to, like, source that during Fashion Week, chatted with Snoop Dogg's son. Hey. Also his father, who walked in Philip Line's show. Name Snoop Dogg. No, 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 no. Papa Snoop. So Snoop's, oh, Snoop Dogg's Snoop's father. father. Gotcha. He was really lovely. And he was wearing these very great corduroy pants that were from H&M that I immediately was, like, wanted to go find. And then, I guess, in terms of just, like, looking forward, like, kind of industry-wise, what's your forecast? What's so interesting about, like, the industry is that, and this is really a thing that I've kind of discovered while writing for an audience that, like, as I said, doesn't always care about the inner workings of the industry, is, like, like see now, buy now, for instance, right? Like, that is a huge conversation that everybody's having, everybody's trying to, like, experiment with. I wrote a little piece about, like, Tommy Hilfiger's London Fashion Week show, and I basically asked readers, like, is this working for you? Like, all of these huge shows, like, the collaboration with Gigi, like, is this getting your attention? And, like, people wrote back and were just like, I didn't even know this was happening. So that's kind of the thing, right? It's like that is the biggest example of see now, by now. And it's getting through to some people, but, like, not a lot. Maybe a lot. I don't know. This is a very small sample size. But, yeah, it, like, doesn't entirely matter to them. The thing that, like, I'm just very interested in and I think, like, what the future of sustainability is and kind of, like, what the future of people saying they want to buy less but still existing in a fast fashion culture like what is that future because I think like there's a reason that Patagonia has been getting such good press recently like GQ style just published an interview with like the archivists and Patagonia right now is the most badass company out there because it has a founder who's like don't buy stuff like we want to make really good stuff that lasts but also doesn't have any nostalgia about like archival collections very much does not look at this as like a fashion thing but fashion nonetheless loves it i think like there's a real hunger from people to like not engage with this culture but like we're conditioned to so like how do you break that cycle like i don't know this is just kind of like a perpetual question but this is something that I would love for people to figure out for themselves. I mean, it's one of those weird things where it's like it's a personal journey. But then like on the corporate level, like they don't give a shit. How do you measure success for a piece? And why do you measure it that way? You know, I think this is like maybe because I'm not like a business executive. I like don't look at the hard numbers too closely. We receive daily metrics on like They've actually never published any of your stories. <laughs> they're just <laughs> they in it. Just told they're in me. the drafts. They're all drafts. They just told me that they went up. Yeah. And they were like, "It's doing so good." Um <laughs> more. <laughs> Keep writing. I think initially I was very as a writer, I was very anecdotal about negative comments mm. because right like when you start off as an internet writer, somebody says something mean and you're like, "Oh god, I'm terrible. I should never do this." And then you kind of swing the other way and you get very anecdotal about like people saying nice things or like people retweeting it neither which is like entirely helpful but yeah I mean it's kind of about engagement I think like and I think that's kind of one way that like media companies generally can look at what they're doing like it's not necessarily about like hard page views although we do get daily metrics about those so like you do kind of see how your stuff is performing relative to other people's and like of course if you publish a big thing like you want to be up at the top but yeah I mean it's about the emails that you're getting back about it I mean the French girl story was a great example of that like I've never gotten so many emails just from people I didn't know. Like I got an email from one woman who is a professor at Furman and she had taught a class on 
like dissecting the myth of the French woman. And they used all the self-help literature as their textbooks. And it was basically a way of like teaching students how to deconstruct cultural stereotypes and like look at a culture more objectively. And that was so cool. And she was like, I'm publishing an academic article about it in the fall. And I was like, great, please send that to me. Like those are kind of the most meaningful things is when you're like, somebody read this all the way through. I had a friend from college who I don't really talk to very frequently at all. He said he had like read the California style piece and he was like, I didn't realize you, you'd written it until I got to the end and I saw your name there. And I was like, that is the best compliment mm. you could get. But I know my dad always reads my stuff. So That's great. Yeah. What's the right length for a story? Word count. As long as it needs to be. I mean, <laughs> that's all I want. Yeah, well, that is, that well, is what's, the your, what's your preferred length for a story I, as a reader? Oh, for a reader? I don't know. Probably like, actually, no. I was about to say like probably like 150 words, but that's actually not true. Like our readers really read those long form pieces. Yeah. So again, it's kind of like as long as it should be. I mean, like I'm very happy writing at like a... 2,000 to 3,000 word range. I mean, that's when you can kind of like actually start to get into something. But like I wrote a a little ditty about like being scared of washing my face and looking into the bathroom mirror and seeing something behind me. And that was like a very pleasant like 700 word piece. Actually, that is a story that I thought was going Mm. to just be like a little sinker that like didn't mean much and that's fine. But people had a very strong response to it because other people have the same fears that I do. I thought that people would be like, this is insane. What? You're a (laughs) child. And then what's just the last interesting thing you read? Mm. Can I say watched? Because I am just so impressed with States of Undress. Like, I mentioned... Explain what it is. Yes. Okay. So it's a documentary series on Viceland hosted by Haley Gates. They go around the world and basically talk to people about, like, local clothing culture or, or local beauty culture. And invariably, it's a lens through which to look at much bigger political or social issues. The production on that is just incredible. Like, they get really amazing interviews. Haley Gates does a really fantastic job. Talking to people about their clothing is inherently very humanizing, and it's inherently something that, like, you feel a lot of empathy toward because it's something that we all engage with. But she just does a really fantastic job of, like, both kind of getting to the meat of the issues at hand, but also, like, engaging on a very, like, human, frankly, like, fun-to-watch level. And I just think that show is doing a great job of pushing forward this conversation about clothing as something that is so meaningful, even when people don't always think it is. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Loose Threads podcast. Sign up for Ripcord at loosethreads.com and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. Thanks to George Drake Jr. for editing this episode. I really enjoyed talking with Eliza about the culture side of the industry. Most interviews on the podcast tend to be about the business side, but it's important to focus on the cultural side as well, since they're directly linked. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, including Karen Young of WeShave, Ryan Babazine of Greats, and Mariah Chase of Eloquy. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.